one brother in church history which has had a profound effect upon even your own life, and you don't even recognize it, is the person John Wesley. John Wesley was an Englishman who lived in the 17th century and who influenced greatly the church during his years on earth. John Wesley was born in 1703, uh, the 15th child of his mom and dad. He had many others. Wesley attended Oxford University in England and went on to teach at Lincoln College. He taught Greek and logic. He was ordained a priest in the Church of England in 1728, where he would serve and pastor there. He would return to Oxford in life to join his brother Charles Wesley, whom we sang this morning and who was a prolific hymn writer. He joined his brother Charles and another individual whom you may know, George Whitfield, the traveling evangelist who came to America and was instrumental in the Great Awakening in America and in Europe. A group dedicated there in Oxford they were a part of built, sought to build a holy life. They were called the Holy Club by the outsiders. They were methodological in their approach to following Christ. Each day, Wesley would set aside an hour for prayer and meditation and reflection. He would fast twice a week. He would regularly visit prisons, those who were sick, widows. By doing all of this, Wesley imagined himself to be a Christian. After all, he was a priest in the Church of England. He, he regularly taught God's Word. He regularly read and prayed. All of this activity led him to think that he had a relationship with God. Well, it wasn't until a little later in life, in 19, excuse me, 19, in 1735, in 1735, Wesley joined the Missionary Society in England and came to America, to Georgia, to the prisoner colony there in Georgia, uh, to share the gospel with those Indians that were living there. And it was during his trip to Georgia that he, really his eyes were opened to not only see the depravity of the human heart, but to see his own depravity, to see his own sinfulness as he saw it in the Indians and in, those, in these prison colonies. It was on his way back, though, that his eyes were ever more open. Wesley was riding with a group of German Moravians. The Moravians were devout Christians. They would often pray for hours on end. In fact, the Moravians prayed for 99 years. And at the end of it, the great awakening happened. The Moravians were devout followers of Christ and, and as he returned home he wrestled for years after struggling to understand himself, his sin and Christ. And it was on the morning of May 24th, 1738 something happened. Something strange. He happened upon a passage in the Bible. Just quite mistakenly, he kind of haphazardly found his way to Mark chapter 12. 
And there he saw in verse 34 Jesus' words to that scribe. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Wesley, distraught, recognizing that he was not in the kingdom of God, but far. On the evening of that same day, he went to a meeting. Listen to Wesley recount what happened. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where someone was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God worked in his heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley had a journey into the kingdom of God. For you, maybe it happened maybe instantaneously. You were living a life of sin. You heard the gospel, repented, and believed in Christ. And you believed ever since that moment. Maybe for some today, there's... There's not a particular moment, not a journal entry like Wesley where, where you sense the, the overwhelming urge of God to repent. Maybe for you it was slow over a period of time. I think Wesley would agree with that. That his journey into the kingdom of God wasn't instantaneous for he had often been near the gospel. He taught it. He preached it. He did not know it. No, it wasn't until he placed his faith in Christ alone that he entered the kingdom. That's what we want to think about this morning, is that journey into the kingdom of God. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no one besides him. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Over the last few weeks, we have seen Jesus confronted by religious leaders. 
Jesus has been regularly and often from different signs and different angles confronted by different groups of people. Uh, we saw earlier in chapter 11 and through chapter 12, Jesus continually being confronted by a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, which were sort of the fundamentalists of the day. They were the Bible-believing, you know, very staunch, fundamental, taking God at his word. And then last week, we saw Jesus sort of confronted then by the Sadducees, uh, the ruling class, the, the elite there in Israel. They were the ones who uh, did and were fundamental, but they only believed in part of the Old Testament, that is the first five books. We saw that confrontation last week, that question over whether or not uh, there's a resurrection. This week, we have a, a new fellow has come along, a new uh, religious leader, this time a scribe. Now, these scribes are not new to us. We've encountered them already. And so we want to think about them and think about this question. Jesus here in his address. So what is Jesus' point in this teaching? My hope is to sort of encapsulate it here in this one thought. While our love for God and our love for others is the starting place of faith, it's not the finish line. Our journey of faith must finally come to rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. While love for God Love for others is a starting place. It's not the, the finish line. There's a way, love God, love others, and still be outside of the kingdom of God. See that in this passage. We want to think about this morning. We want to organize our thoughts around just really three points. First, our journey into the kingdom of God begins with a right understanding of God. It continues then as we place a preeminence on love for God and love for others. We want to think about what that means. Does it mean to love God and to love others? And then finally, we cross the finish line in our journey when we come to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to kind of think about that journey. Kind of think about the Christian life as a journey. Now, to be clear, I just want you to really hear me well here. We are talking this morning about the journey into the kingdom of God, not the journey in the kingdom of God. Okay? So we're talking about the journey in, not the journey into, not the journey while we once we've gotten there. The Bible often describes two types of journeys in life: the journey to the kingdom and the journey in the kingdom. Okay? And so we're kind of thinking about a little bit about going to the kingdom. How do we get to the kingdom? Not that there's not implications. There are implications that we're going to think about as Christians um, when we're in the kingdom. How do we continue to love God? How do we continue to know God? How do we continue to trust in the gospel? So, so don't hear me say this morning that it's like you, you learn these things and then you sort of like move on from those things. Paul regularly said, I, I just can't get over the gospel. All he talked about was the gospel. Because the gospel intersects every single point in our life. From brushing your teeth in the morning to going to bed at night, 
the gospel intersects every point of our lives. And really, a typical fashion here, Mark leaves us with a question. What happens to this guy's faith? What happens to him? Does he ever get into the kingdom? That's what we want to think about this morning. Let's look first. The journey into the kingdom begins with a right understanding of God. Mark tells us that a scribe uh, notices Jesus' debate with the Sadducees. Remember last week, Jesus was debating those Sadducees, and, and he was really whipping up on them, right, with his wisdom. He was, he was showing them uh, how wise he was. They were trying to kind of outsmart Jesus, you know, that kind of smart aleck question that you might get uh, from a child. This is the Sadducees, and, and it was in the midst of this, Jesus just displays this wonderful godlike wisdom. And it was this that the Sadducees, excuse me, the scribe sort of looked at, he says, wow, this is awesome. Now, why the scribe was so amazed by Jesus was because a scribe was an expert on the law. So some translations translate this a, a, a law teacher. I don't think a good translation, and, and the NIV is really the only modern translation that does this, is lawyer. Uh, the reason why that's not good is because you and I have so much baggage with that word, right? Uh, when, you, when I just said the word lawyer, you thought about that, those little uh, snakes on TV with their commercials, right? Or you thought about, uh, you know, or maybe you thought about a good lawyer. I don't know. But often in our culture, lawyer carries sort of a negative sense. And, that, and that's not what the scribe would have been. He wouldn't have been a scoundrel cheat. He would have been someone who would have known the law. He would have been someone, though, that someone would have looked to to interpret the law. But he was also one who taught the law. He's someone who actually told other people about what the law said and how it applied to their life. What we see happen here is something quite interesting. A question he asked, which he would have probably asked himself often, or even heard himself often. Imagine, if, if you're the expert in a particular field, right? you're the one who everyone comes to. I get this often. People find out I can do something with plumbing. People are like, how do you fix this? How do you fix it? What do you do? Maybe you're an electrician. How do you do this electrical work here? Right? How do you do this? How do you, how do you build this? How, do you, how, how does this work? Mechanic, how do you fix a car? Right? You're the expert. The people have questions for you. Well, this scribe would have heard this question often in his life. Scribe, Mr. Scribe, what is the most important commandment? What, what should I pay attention to? What should I give my, my attention to, Mr. Scribe? So the scribe, having probably thought most often about this question, poses this question to Jesus. The most important question about the most important things. What is the most important commandment? Look with me in verse 28. You'll see there that he asked this question, what commandment is most important of all? You'll notice most modern translations translate this most important. The King James translates this first of all, which is quite confusing. Because it's not really what Jesus is at, what this man is asking. He's not asking which is the first in a, in a sort of a list, you know, sort of what's commandment number one on the list. That's often what we think about when we think about commandments, right? Why? Because of the Ten Commandments. So I think commandment number one, as if it's hierarchical. It's as if one is more important than ten. 
right? That's not what he's asking. He's not asking, hey, on a list, you know, of one to ten, what's the number one thing I should be giving myself to? And then, you know, sort of number two, number three. It's not what he's asking. So that's why modern translators, right, people way smarter than me, uh, translate this most important or preeminent. What is the preeminent commandment? What is the one thing that is the most important thing that I should give my attention to? What is the thing that overrides every other commandment? What is that commandment? He's asking. You get a sense of it. And Jesus responds in really an unlike fashion. I think one of the things you want to think about this question that's being asked is perhaps sizing Jesus up. Now you remember the, the Pharisees and the scribes were buddies. And in Mark's gospel, they're often counted together all the time. Um, and, and so the scribe here, perhaps, and I'm not pressing this hard, perhaps is sort of sizing Jesus up. Look, you can learn a lot about something by asking the right questions, right? If you ask them a question, you know, hey, what's most important in your life? Well, often that's a question I do ask people. Because those questions, sort of the answer to the question, really just sort of tells me, well, who is most important? So perhaps the scribe is, is seeking to understand a little bit more of Jesus' theology. What do you believe about God? Are you, are you sort of creating a new religion here? Or is this, are you building on the, another? What's going on? So we notice here in verse 29, Jesus' answer. Jesus answers him in verse 29, the most important is this, or, or the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. <laughs> now to us, we think, ah, okay, good answer, Jesus. But to a Jew, this would have rang in their ears. Jews quoted this passage of Scripture morning and evening. It's the Shema. Jews today, if you were to go down yesterday morning, down to the, to the, to, to the temple or, or you know, to their, to their uh, meeting place, you would have heard the Shema read aloud or, or memorized. They know it. They, they would have said it aloud. And, and the word Shema is just a Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Israel. It was the declaration that Moses gave to the people as they entered into the promised land there in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That, that phrase would have been on their lips continually and in their minds rolling around. The Lord is one. Well, it, would have, it, was, it is to the Jews or to Judaism what the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed is to us. So how we often recite the Lord's Prayer or creeds like the Apostles' Creed or, or the Nicene Creed. Uh, how we often have John 3.16 quick on our lips. So they were quick with this passage. So what does this all mean? Jesus is again showing us that right understanding of God is the beginning of all things. That's what we looked at last week. Well, that's what we look at this week. True knowledge of God is the beginning. If you're wrong about who God is, you will be wrong about everything else. 
So Jesus here tells us that the Lord our God is one. Notice what he says. The Lord our God. The Lord our God. He's our God. The Lord, the sovereign one over the nations. Again, the nation of Israel would often quote this when they were going into battle. A reminder to them. Reminding themselves of who God was and is. He's the sovereign ruler over his people. And he is one. This God does not share his throne with anyone. He's a jealous God. to this monotheism of the Old Testament of the nation of Israel that God is one. There is no one like Him. That God alone is worthy of worship. That this, tro- that this God is the one, the one true God. Now I want you to think for a moment what Jesus is saying when He quotes this passage and the claims that the apostles will make later on. That Jesus himself quotes this passage and says that Lord is one. And then will say with the same breath, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. It is no accident that the apostles in the New Testament use this descriptor for Jesus. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no accident. The same word that Mark uses here, kurios, is the same word that Paul and Peter and the rest of the apostles use to say, that's Jesus. What we'll see in a moment is what this man was missing was that Jesus was the Lord. Why he wasn't in the kingdom and just near the kingdom is because he had not yet rested in Christ. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many little g gods and many little l lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom, excuse me, whom all things and for whom they, we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Paul applies the same descriptor, from whom all things and for whom we exist, not only to God the Father, but to God the Son. Some, for centuries, millennia, have been confused about who Jesus is. If you worship God, any less than Jesus, you don't worship the eternal God of the Bible. If you don't believe that God has come to us in the person of Jesus, then you're not worshiping the same God we are. You can call yourself a Christian, You can call yourself a church. You can call yourself whatever you want. But if Jesus is not the God whom you worship, then it's not the God of the Bible. What a great reminder it is that Jesus is quick and often to remind us of the truth. Abraham Cowper famously said, 
There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not claim mine. What, 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 G, what Cowper is saying there and, and what we believe Jesus is saying here is that the Lord, our God, is sovereign over the universe and over us. That you may this morning say, I'm not God's and I don't really care much about God or the things of God. It don't matter. God still says, mine. Do what you, I can do with your life how I, I want to do with your life. I can do with it whatever I wish for I am the sovereign Lord. And I just remind you again, if you do not believe that God is sovereign, in the way just described, then why do you pray? Why do you pray? Because God is sovereign. And so our journey begins by understanding who God is, recognizing that God is holy, God is just, that He is creator, that He is sovereign Lord over the universe. That's that's where the gospel begins. But the, the gospel doesn't end there. It continues. So our journey continues to the right ordering of our love. Our journey continues into the kingdom of God as we place a priority on love for God and love for others. Look what Jesus says. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The man asks for one, Jesus gives him two. But Jesus, I don't think, is really giving two commandments here. At least not in the way we think about one and two. Because what we often do is, is play a, a hierarchical kind of thing. We, okay, love God, and like if we get to it, if we have time, we love people. Right? No. Love God, love people, perhaps you just love people. As I love people, I'm just a really loving person, and that sort of flows into loving God. I love God through people. You say that. He says you love God and you love people. You love others. You love your neighbor. It's really, the, the, really inseparable. You can't say you love people and not love God. You can't really say you love God and not love people created in His image. There's no dichotomy. Jesus here for us doesn't split it out into two kind of separate categories, siloing, if you will. I'll focus on this and then kind of get to this. No, they're inseparable. Loving God and loving people is what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of God. So how do we love God? Well, he says, doesn't he? just wondered, like, how do we love God? Now, now, to be clear here in verse 30, the ESV, got to love them. Um, you shall love the Lord your God. Other translations, the Holman or NIV, love the Lord your God. It drops the you shall thing. Why? Because they want to make clear here that Jesus is commanding people to love. Love. Not shall love. Like, you know, if you get will love, I will, I will love, I, will, I shall love it one day. No, no, no. You will love, the, if you want into the kingdom of God, you're going to love the Lord your God, you're going to love others. 
right? So just to be clear, the language here of this passage, right? These are commands. Uh, There's no wiggle room. Not press that hard. Love God. So how do we love God? Jesus says, right? With all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Perhaps just something you can do this afternoon, lunch today. You can think maybe together. What does it look like to love with all my mind? What does it look like to love God with all of my strength? What does it look like to love God with all of my heart? There's really just about four things here, right? First, exclusively. Exclusively. You see sort of a sense of exclusivity. Only God is to be the object of our love. Right? Sort of God alone is the object ultimately of all of our love. So he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now the heart isn't a pumping station in the Bible, right? So that word isn't, we're, we're, not, we're not thinking of like a pump, you know, pumping blood in our body. But the heart is the command center of our lives, right? It's where everything uh, happens. You've seen that funny little movie? Um, uh, slipped out of my mind. Uh, but, but, but we want to see that it's the command center. Secondly, we see diversely with different parts of ourselves. We're not to love God just with one way, but but he says with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength. We love God in many different ways. Thirdly, exhaustively. We love God with all we have. With all, he says. Look what he says. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. All your strength. Exhaustive love for God. Love for God is to grow over time. We need to exhaust every part of ourselves and our lives for God and His glory. God wants whole people to give them their whole selves to Him. That's what He wants. Number four, to love God means to obey God. find it fascinating how often you will hear folks say, I love God, love Jesus, but don't obey Him a bit. You are misunderstanding what, me- what the meaning of love is. Obedience is an expression of our love for God. This is what John says. 1 John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of God. There is this connection between our relationship with God and our love. We do it obediently, John says. Love for God is evidence of salvation. It's the evidence, that the fruit that, that, that kind of bears out in our lives. So what's our motive for, for obedience then? Is it, is it a debtor's ethic? I'll hear Christians sadly often say that. You know, I owe this debt to Jesus, and so I'm just sort of paying my debts to Jesus. That's a sad way to live your life. That's a joyless Christian. That's why you walk around with a frown in your face, because you think you're, you're paying a debt. Look, it, it, it ain't no joke about debt, right? If you've been in debt... You know how painful it is, right? 
say up at night, weep, cry. Try to forget about it, but you can't. That's all. You think your relationship with Jesus, the eternal God of the universe, is a debt? You will, ne you will never be happy because your debt will never be paid. Never. You will never be able to pay Jesus back for what he did. Never. So what then is our motive? Is it a debtor's ethic? No, it is a love. It's a love of God in Christ. Listen to what Paul says. For the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. It controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul doesn't say, you know, as we consider this mass debt that, that we have amassed because of our sin, you know, it really motivates me to be holy because, you know, I just don't want Jesus going back to the cross for my sin. No, he says, when I consider the cross of Christ and love that Christ has shown me in saving me, that compels me to holiness and obedience. That's what moves me. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So how is Paul going to do it? How is he going to do this? By having faith in Christ. By, by believing in the love of Christ that he has experienced. And I think the reason why we struggle in our obedience and our holiness is because we struggle to understand what Christ has done for us. We constantly act as if this is some sort of eternal exchange program where we give and God takes and, and, and God gives and we take all these back and forth. No, it is all God giving and all us taking. And it's the taking part that propels us to be like God. You see, secondly in this passage, not only a love for God, but a love for others. Jesus goes on to say in verse 31, that the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love your neighbor. Jesus here is not quoting an unfamiliar passage, not one that would have shocked the scribe, not one that he would have said, wow, I never thought about that before. No, these two commandments were often in their lips. Often, these commandments. But what Jesus is doing here is uniting our love for God and our love for others into really one grand command. Those who truly love God will also love those created in his image. As I've already said, Jesus is not separating the two, but uniting them in one great commandment, love. Love others. Love God. For the whole law, Paul says, is fulfilled in the one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So who is your neighbor? Luke doesn't include this story in his gospel. Matthew does. Luke doesn't. But Luke includes a very similar story. Maybe perhaps one that went alongside of it. It's a story about a lawyer coming to Jesus or a scribe. And this law teacher, Luke says, came and asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit the kingdom or eternal life? And Jesus then tells that oh familiar passage or parable, the Good Samaritan, about what it means to love 
You see, Jews were loving people. Well, so long as you were a Jew. They loved everyone that was a Jew. And they didn't love anyone that was not. And so this command here to love for this scribe would have been like, yes, amen. But what Jesus is, is identifying here and reminding that you are to love your neighbor. Well, who is your neighbor? Well, Jesus identifies him as anyone in need. So how does that connect to us? Who is your neighbor? That may be the person that lives next to you, literally. Or it may be that immigrant who's fled persecution and come to this country. It may be the refugee or the undocumented immigrant in our land that God is calling us to love. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. I wonder how often we join political sides without really thinking about the implications of our politics. How often we forsake love for others so that we can stand upon some sort of political position. I just wonder, how would you feel if you lived in a land that was unfamiliar and unlike the one you grew up in? How disoriented would you be how scared would you be? I can tell you this much, I would be a baby. I would probably cry. But my hope is that the church of Jesus Christ would welcome me and make me feel at home. For we are sojourners ourselves, aren't we as Christians? Traveling through. I'm not speaking about those who break laws or who don't obey the law of the land. That's not what I mean. I mean, do we genuinely show love to those in need? Those without a coat or a home? Without food? Maybe perhaps even among us we have those who are hurting. Those that are going without. Do we constantly have in our hearts others for ourselves. J.C. Ryle, a pastor in England, wrote, Let us keep these two grand rules continual, continually before our minds and use them daily in our journey through life. Let us see in them a summary of all that we ought to aim at in our practice, both as regard to God and man, by them, let us try every difficulty of conscience that happened to beset us. Just to write it on. Listen to what he says. He concludes with this. Happy is that man who strives to frame his life according to these rules. Love God and love others. We see third, thirdly and finally, our journey into the kingdom of God is complete when we come to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the most chilling words, Jesus tells this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Friends, mere affirmations are not enough. The scribe affirms everything Jesus says, doesn't he? 
In verses 32 and 33, you're right, you're correct, yes, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that, that God is one and there's no one beside him. He's acknowledging knowledge of God and to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself. It's much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Friends, it is tempting to get near these things, to get near knowledge of God, to get near love. And we think, I'm in. I'm in the kingdom. I'm a loving person. I'm a good person. I do good things. We saw in the story of Wesley how, how tempting it is to imagine ourselves are Christians just by our activity. We can even be a pastor of a church and not be saved. Oh, it's so possible. Just like you can get close to a fire and feel its effects. You can feel its warmth. It's really not in there. Just close. Just feel it. Oh, we can be confused. So mere affirmations are, are never enough with Jesus. We can only come inside through Christ. That's what the point this, this man needed to hear. That's, I think, what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, you're really close. What you need to see is me. I'm the Lord. Believe on me. Christians, it is so easy for us to sort of get over Jesus. We don't mean to do it, but we do. We get beyond the gospel. We get over it. We, we say, like, that's for kids. We, we learned that in Sunday school. No, the gospel is central, right? I just wonder, will you finish this man's journey? We don't really know what happened to this guy, do we? Jesus doesn't really say. Mark doesn't tell us. Kind of left like, man, whatever happened to that guy? Whatever happened to that scribe? Jesus, that scribe you talked to, did he ever, did he ever believe in you? Or did he miss him? Did he ever enter in the kingdom or did he miss him? Well, that's how Mark often writes us. It's actually how Mark ends the entire book. Sort of a cliffhanger. Kind of just leaves it. Whatever happened? Mark does this for one purpose. Did you Am I in the kingdom? Will I finish this man's journey? Will am I in the kingdom? Have, have I entered in? Have I rested in Christ? Have I given myself to Christ and to him alone? Can I say like Wesley? Can His words be on my words that I felt I do trust Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and assurance given me that He had taken my sins? Oh friend, I pray that you come to that kind of assurance today. That you rest in Christ alone. That, that you can, as we often sing, I, my faith has found a resting place. In Lie on Christ. You're alive. Let's pray. Let's pray.
eternal God, we give glory and honor and praise to you. Oh, this love of Christ controls us, compels us to love you. Oh, Lord, we know that we, we don't first love you. No, no, no. First love us in Christ. You gave your Son for us. And we now, in faith, in faith alone, live out our service. And God, I pray for these people, for myself, that you would help us to love everyone. We would go all in with you. Give our life to you. Lord, that we would go all in for others. That we would sacrifice our own lives for the sake of those around us, those in need. That we would go without so others could go without. God, help us to do this. Finally, Father, we pray that you would convert sinners to Awaken us to our sin, that we might find the rest of Christ. This is our plea, this is our prayer, for your glory.